Hello and welcome to another episode of Saturday the 14th. I'm Maggie. Wait, no you're not. Mags, I was trying to steal your identity. You can't steal my identity. Uh, how else am I supposed to get out of here alive? Is there something I don't know about what's happening in this Gotta apartment take building? Take your face. No. Put it on my face. No. Pretend to be dead. No. We leave. I get out, no one knows I'm alive. How about this? I smuggle you out in the huge sleeves of this incredibly voluminous blouse that I'm wearing. That might be more comfortable you could for both probably of us. I, I probably could fly could. away with them. Just anything really that doesn't have to do with you removing the skin from my face and attaching it over your own face would be, I mean, ideal. I know not not every circumstance can go exactly how I want it to, but it would be, I, I would say, preferable. I mean, I guess if you really don't want me to, I don't have to. But... I don't want you to. Yeah, no, I don't okay. want that. We can figure it out after the show. Well, anyway. Um, so speaking of taking people's faces off and taking off other parts of people's skin. Welcome to an episode on Face Off. I wish. God, I wish that was a horror movie. Yeah, I know. It kinda, it's a little horrific. I mean, it is horrifying to watch yes Yes. yeah but not the classic sense of a horror movie no we are talking about a different movie that also involves taking someone's face and putting it on their own face hell yeah we are we are talking silence of the lambs anthony hopkins is so good and so creepy and i actually forgot how we got out of that scene so hey it had been a while since i'd seen this one so i didn't i was kind of like just excited about everything that was happening i haven't seen this in god years and years probably and really, the star of this movie, though, is Jodie Foster's accent. Truly. Truly. I did wonder if she was actually Southern? I don't think she well, No, she's from California. She's from Los Angeles. Yeah. So I guess technically she's Southern in that she is from the Southern half so of the Cal. United States. <laughs> she would not have that accent, though. No, the Western she Virginia accent. I don't even know if that's an accurate West Virginia accent. I have no idea what an actual one sounds like. I only know one person from West Virginia, and he does not have an accent. We'll never, ever know. I know. If only there was a way for us to find out, but I guess we won't. We just can't. We can't go to West Virginia. Just on like a field trip for this podcast to find out what their accents sound like. Vacation. (laughs) There's a beach there, I think. West Virginia touches the water, I think. I don't think that's true. But Virginia touches the water because Virginia Beach is a thing. And if it's called West Virginia, oh shit. West because on the other side of the country, (laughs) as it turns out, the coast is on the other side. I legitimately forgot that. I was like, no, but the west side is the side of the coast. Oh, so. my God. <laughs> it's fine. It's been a long oh, week. Oh, boy. What a day. Long night. <laughs> long life. Uh, okay. Um, so let's get into this. Let's. Uh, so obviously we're watching Silence of the Lambs. Uh, this movie came out in 1991, which is also the year that I came out. And me. Oh. My mother. I just appeared randomly one day. <laughs> I didn't come out of anything. I just like. It's the year that I kicked my way out of my father's skull, Athena style. Whoop, there she is. (laughs) Uh, It is directed by Jonathan Dem. Um, The screenplay was written by Ted Talley, and it was based on the book of the same name by Thomas Harris. Which came out in 1988. I actually read that one 10 to 15 years ago, (laughs) so my recollection's gonna be. I'm gonna want you to be giving us real accurate descriptions of what happened. I remember approximately three things from the book. Great. One of those things happens in the movie. I hope I didn't make the others up. Awesome. We'll see. (laughs) Uh, It stars, as we mentioned, Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster's incredible West Virginian accent. Anthony Hopkins. Ted Levine. And Scott Glenn. Yay, Scott Glenn. Scott Glenn was in, I believe, Sucker Punch. Do you remember Sucker Punch? I've never seen Sucker Punch. (gasps) I thought that you went and saw it 
Because I saw it in the theaters in college. I assumed that you I think you saw it when I was studying abroad. That's probably better for you. It's a very bad movie. Is that the weird, like, semi-sexist, like, gaming Oh, it's not just semi-sexist. It's full-bore sexist. Fantasy, uh, fantasy yeah, it's movie. really, it's like a fakey female empowerment movie where everything's very Isn't sexist someone, still. The main character's named, like, Baby or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. It's a Zack Snyder movie, so. I haven't seen you it. You get what you get. I'm basing this off of what I read at some point and then from there decided not to watch this movie. Yeah. Anyway, Scott Glenn's in it, and he's fine in it. I guess. He's fine in this, too. Yeah, he's good. He's all right. He's got a very slicked back hairdo. He does. And he's very professional. I appreciate that he is a responsible professional man. He's not a creep at all. Which is weird, because almost everyone else in this movie is a creep. We are going to get into that. Yes, we will. Um, So the budget for this movie was $19 million, which is not a tiny budget. No, especially for 1991. Yeah. And it it has big names in it. Like, Jodie Foster just won an Oscar. Anthony Hopkins was Anthony Hopkins. He was about to win an Oscar. He sure was. This was actually kind of his star-making role, but he'd been in some other movies, and they were like, get that guy. And then uh, the movie came back and made a whopping 272.2. Seven million dollars. That's two seven two seven. It almost looks like a typo, but it's not. It's not. It made almost uh, over ten times its budget, which is crazy. Oh, oh. and it deserves it because it's an incredible movie. Um, but it's real fun. Kind yeah. of, I don't know. Fun? Is that the right word? It has its fun moments, I would say. I mean, I think watching Anthony Hopkins eat someone is kind of fun. Yeah, and just, like, the, the, the performances are incredible. They are really good. There's a lot of that fun, like, almost true crimey inspired angle of it, which is awesome as well. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, I think it's cool. a great movie. I don't take back it's calling not, it a fun movie. Yeah, sure. I don't think you need to. It's not a perfect movie. Parts of it have aged kind of weirdly, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, a uh, overall, I like it. Cool, so let's get started. Yeah, so we start off um, on a foggy afternoon, I guess, or morning in the woods, and we see this young girl running through the young forest. Woman. Young woman, you're right. She's not a young girl. But yeah, she's running. Run, run, running. And uh, instead of being somebody running away from a psycho like these movies normally start, it's just Clarice Starling, the most incredible FBI trainee who's ever existed, um, who is trying to like go through the FBI training course, like the uh, obstacle course uh, at Quantico in Virginia. And she is like approached by another like a, another person who works for the FBI um, who tells her that uh, Jack Crawford from the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit wants to talk to her. Did you know that they named Clarice Clarice Starling because they wanted her to be a very bird-like character? She is very bird-like. I would say that. I made that up. Well, you did a great job. Thank you. Because she, she has a very, you know, she she's, does got, have a bird-like she's got quality. like a delicate face and kind of, kind of a sharp pointy nose. features. Yeah, she's, I can see it. I like it. If that wasn't true before, it's, it's true now. We're making up the truth as we go along. It's 2019. Make up facts on this podcast. But I like think as very you immediately tell us that they're made up, that's fine. Okay, great. Yeah, she's a bird. <laughs> she's actually a bird. <laughs> she's flying through the forest. It would really make some of the climbing, I think, easier for her if she could just hop up and fly up. And Probably. Anyway. Uh, so she goes and she sees Jack Crawford, and he's working on a uh, a case of the serial killer called Buffalo Bill, right? And so she goes into... Well, initially, he's telling her that he they're trying to interview specific... Um, right. But when she, when she goes into his office, it's, like, full of the pictures of Buffalo yeah. Bill, and she's like, fuck, I want to learn more about this guy, because she's... But that's not what her job is. No. Her job is to go and do a psych analysis of... The infamous serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal the Cannibal. Ooh. Ooh. Um, and get him to fill out a questionnaire. 
<laughs> which is the most okay fun fact about this um the guy have you watched mindhunter no you should watch mindhunter it's great okay it's on netflix you know that it's 2019 i did not know it was on netflix that makes it even better it's free for you because you're already paying for netflix anyway not important um Jack Crawford is based off of a guy named John Douglas, who was one of the founders of the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI. And what he did with his team is he went out and he interviewed serial killers to gain insight. And there was actually a questionnaire that they had to fill out or, you know, they would ask them the questions and they would record their answers. Um, And he wrote a book called Mindhunter, and that was made into a television show, also called Mindhunter, on Netflix, which stars Jonathan Groff as a character named Holden Ford, who is based off of John Douglas, who is also the inspiration for Jack Crawford. So it's all a big circle. He's a very famous character to be adapted in pop culture, what I, I okay, thought was very gotcha. interesting. So he was actually going around and having people fill out these you know, questionnaires, okay. basically. It sounds crazy, but... Well, you know. in this case, he's not doing it. He is sending this trainee to do it. Yes. And apparently she's pretty good. Uh, he gave her an A- minus in his class. Yeah. Because he's like, I gave you an A. And, she's and like, she a minus. wants to work for him so She really does. Bad. And uh, he tells her that he's never been able to, um, like, get any information out of Hannibal Lecter, really, because Hannibal Lecter doesn't like him. And so she's like, all right, well, I guess I'll go give it a shot. So she goes to the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where she is hit on by the grossest man. Oh, God, he's so gross. Ugh. And he's talking about how, like, oh, do you think he sent you here because you're attractive? And, like, not because you're good at your job. And she's like, I went to the University of Virginia. It's not really a charm school. Because <laughs> she's amazing. She is. I um, love her. He ends up taking her down. And she doesn't really want him to come with. And he even says, this guy Chilton, um, that Lecter hates him. And so yeah. she's like, great. So don't come with me. I'm going to go alone. <laughs> right. And so she does. And, uh, yeah. And so she goes down. And it's like. There's all this protocol for, like, you can't bring anything in with you. You can only hand him soft paper. There can't be any staples. You can't give him a pen. If he hands you anything, you're not allowed to take it. Like, all of these, like, really rigorous things. And she goes down. It's like this labyrinth. They, like, go down into the basement to, like, this dungeon, basically, where he's being kept along with some other people. And so she goes in. She checks in. She's like, you stay here. She's kind of walked in by the really nice guys who are working the... There are a uh, couple other really creepy people around, right. like Megs, who's, Oof. like, whispering gross things to her. Yeah. Everyone knows the line, right? I can smell your cunt. I mean, I don't think that's an instantly recognizable line from the movie, but that's what the line is. It is. And um, when she gets to see Hannibal Lecter, he's like, what was it that Megs said to you? And she tells him. And he's like, I can't smell that. But then he, like lifts his nose into the air and he's like i can smell like and then he names like she's the like, brand yeah. of she's skin like you cream. wear evian skin cream and you wear this one kind of perfume sometimes but not today and she's like okay and he's behind like this so everybody else is just behind normal doors like normal cell doors he's behind like a three inch thick plexiglass wall with like air holes in it and he's just standing there creepily he has these drawings all over the place and so and the they, drawings are beautiful oh yeah he's a great artist and he's like, she asks about them and he says, well, he needs something to look at because he doesn't have a view. Right. He wishes that he could be somewhere with a tree or whatever. I think he that he says something like, because she asks, did you draw these all from memory? And he says, like, memory is all you have. Right. When you don't have any type of view. Exactly. And so they start talking. And honestly, at first, he's kind of chill. Like, he initially, like, immediately calls her out. He's like, oh, so you're one of, like, Jack Crawford's, like, 
students and she's like yeah i am she's doing this thing where she like kind of is building up the trust trying to get stuff and then she like tries to give him the questionnaire he's like nah get the fuck out of here yeah i'm not here for that right and she he like unleashes on her because like she's not supposed to tell him anything personal that's like one of the things is that he'll get inside of your head if you tell him anything personal and he goes off on this tangent about like oh i can tell your accent like you're from west virginia like i can tell by your shoes and your purse that you like you're pretending that you're you know, this professional woman, but you're, like, just a generation away from white trash. Like, did your dad work in the coal mines? Like, all this really super mean shit. Yeah. And she's like, okay, bye, and leaves. And then Miggs, the guy who said the gross line to her, is, like, talking about how he's, like, making himself bleed and stuff like that. He's not. He's not. And then he, like, looks up and he throws, like, jizz on her. And he's like, gotcha. It's really... Like, retchingly disgusting. And then uh, Hannibal Lecter calls her back he's like Clarice Clarice come back she goes back and he's like that was indescribably rude unspeakably ugly is actually Mm -hmm. what he said and he's like okay I'm gonna help you achieve what you want most which is advancement so look up an old patient of mine Miss Moffat M-O-F-E-T yeah and he's like the grossest not the grossest line because what has just happened is very disgusting and goes I don't think Miggs is gonna be able to replicate that again soon or something like that go quickly because yeah like i don't think he'll be able to do it quite that quickly but also it's mig so who knows yeah and she's like great i'm getting the fuck out of here and she runs away yeah and then we get a flashback and it's a sweet flashback it is and it shows that uh clarice's dad coming home um and that he is actually a detective and not whatever it was that uh hannibal coal miner accused him of being yeah and so she has this beautiful memory of him and, like, how everybody in the community loved him and, you know, saying hi to all the neighbors and he's, like, giving her a hug. And then she just, like, we see her back in her car and she's just, like, crying after, like, being grossly assaulted yeah. by a weird creep. So she goes back to school um, and she is studying all nice and hard with her classmates. Mm-hmm. But she's also been doing some research on Hannibal. Yeah. Like, looking up things that she can about his clients, but, like, a lot of his stuff was destroyed by, like, he destroyed it after he was arrested or right before he was arrested. Um, And so she's, like, kind of looking into the stuff that he told her, but she hasn't had, like, a ton of luck with it. And uh, then she gets a call, and they find out that Miggs killed himself. He choked on his own tongue. Yeah, and... um, that Lecter was up all night, like, whispering things to him yeah. in order, like, to convince him to kill himself. Yeah. Real creepy. Right. And during the call, Crawford, who's the one who calls her, is also like, um, you know, what else did he say to you? Like, I know he talked to you, like, have you gotten anything out of um, the name Moffat? She goes, well, no, he destroyed all of his files, but he did say something about, like... Um, yourself yourself like the way he phrased it sounded like really hokey and corny but there was like a sentence that he used with the term yourself really prominently and And she's like like, yourself storage location right outside where he used to operate so she decides to go check this out and there is a um unit that is being rented to a hester moffat yep which i think is an anagram but i don't remember what it's an anagram it is it's an anagram for the rest of me which becomes relevant because she finds a severed head. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't get that connection. Yeah. Uh, and so she finds this head. And uh, inside of the mouth of the severed head, there is a moth. Yes. A specific type of moth called a sphinx moth. Yeah. And so she goes back to Lecter. And Lecter is like, yeah, I didn't kill that guy. He's like the first... Um, 
attempt of a serial killer who's just figuring out what he likes. And she's like, what do you mean? Like, is it connected to Buffalo Bill? And he's like... He doesn't outright say yes. No, but he, like... He doesn't tell her outright, but he's like, I-, I can help you with this. Like, I do know something about Buffalo Bill. Like, I can help you. But... I don't want to stay here in this jail with this shitty fucking Chilton guy who hates me and I hate him and he's like the worst, so you have to find me somewhere else to also, go. Also, during the scene while they're talking, there is just a silent TV facing Lecter and it is like a gospel channel and he's like, yeah, that's like the day after Miggs died, they plugged that in and as soon as you leave, they're going to turn that back on, so don't feel like you need to get out of here. Yeah. I mean, he says all this much more eloquently than I do because he is a very eloquent person. Right. And I'm not. And she, like, tells him a little bit more about herself as yeah. well. Because they, ha- they kind of start this thing where, like, he will give her information if she tells him stuff. And it kind of ramps up later, but that's sort of, like, the this beginning of it. isn't quite the quid pro quo section. No, a section but he, like, wants... Like, quid pro quo. Right. But he wants to hear more about her. Yeah. Um, and so... While all this is happening, we also see a shot of our mysterious killer, Buffalo Bill, who lures this young woman named Catherine Martin um, into helping him move a couch into a van that he has parked outside her building. Yeah, and it was really cute. She was carrying a bunch of groceries, and she was coming home to her cat mm-hmm. and was going to go inside. And he was like, can you help me like move this couch? Actually, no, she offered because he, he was struggling and he had a cast hand. on. A real Ted Bundy move. Yeah. yeah. And so um, she helps like pick it up. She gets into the van to like be the one to take the heavy, like the end into the van. Then he like shoves it in and slams the door shut. And yeah. That poor cat. I know. It's meowing at the end of the scene. It made I me really know. sad. Um, and so Clarice, I guess they found a body of one of Buffalo Bill's victims that had been weighed down. They think it's, like, his first victim. They find her later on, and they're going to look at her body and, like... I think initially it's supposed to seem like it's the victim that we just saw right, being but it's abducted, not. but it's not actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go in to help, and at some point, Crawford's talking to the local police. He's like, hey, like, let's do this, but, like, let's do it maybe without a woman present. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go leave so they can have a private conversation. And she's like, fuck this. She's not into it. And she's like, all of these, you know, men are staring at her. And she has this flashback because they're in, like, the funeral home where, like, the body is being preserved because yeah. they don't really have, like, a morgue morgue because they're in the middle of, like, rural West Virginia. And so... um, She's, like, pissed off. There are all these, like, local cops standing around staring at her. And she, like, sort of has a flashback to, like, her childhood, like, after her dad was killed. Um, and, like, his funeral. And then she gets called into the autopsy room, goes in with him, and is basically like, hey, cops, get the fuck out. We're doing grown-up shit now. And, like, sends them yeah. out into the other room. And at some point, uh, Crawford does apologize to her, being like, I was just trying to get some private time with him and get away from everyone because there are so many eyes. And she's like, well, that's great, but, like, other people look to you to see how to act and how to treat me, so what you do matters. And, and he's like, like that's oh, fair. Yeah, girl. I got you. And he doesn't do that again. No, he's reasonable. He learns from it. He just, yeah. Um, but while they are uh, doing the autopsy on this dead body, they find a cocoon in the mouth. Yes. And also there are these like oblong kind of tri- pointed strips of skin missing from the woman's body. Yeah, like diamond shapes sort of. They're like diamonds, but like longer. Yeah, and, and they're like, what the fuck is this? Like, what could this possibly mean? So they pull the moth out and she goes and she talks to like this en- uh, etymologist, entomologist. Which one is words and which one is bugs? Bug guy. Yeah, a bug scientist. And she brings him the bug and he's like, okay, this is like a death's head moth. 
right? I mean, he's also or the Sphinx monk. Whatever one of the, the two of them is just staring at her constantly the entire time. Yeah, as well. he's really into her. A lot of men are very into Clarice Starling, and she does not have the time for it. Which in I this love. Movie. <laughs> She's great. Love her. Um, and so basically, they're they're specifically from Asia. So like, if you want them, like you can't just find them out in the wild. Like you have to the order bugs, them. Not these right, not bug the scientists. scientists. They're I presume from the U.S. Um, so they're like, okay, well, if you find a guy who's like ordered these bugs, like that's probably going to help you out. She's like, great, cool. So they decide that they need to talk to Lecter to figure out what the fuck is going on because he clearly knows something. And because he had his very specific conditions, um, Crawford gives Clarice Sterling the go-ahead to offer him a fake deal. Yeah. We don't know it's fake at the time when she's doing it. But it's, but like, it's obviously too good to be true. Because she's yeah. going to, like, have him relocated upstate and then also, like, once a month for a week or something like that? It's or 24 like, hours? It's once a week. Sorry. For one week, once a year, right. he will get to go to this, like, weird island. He'll get to go into the water for one hour a day, but with, like, SWAT team supervision. Yeah. Which is, like, nobody's going to spend that much fucking money no, making God, life no. slightly better for a lunatic cannibal. Like, that's not going to happen. But he... He actually kind of buys it. He kind of does. Although it's not... It's not easy to tell how much he buys and how much he's just going along with things. Yeah, but he basically says, like, sure, that sounds good, um, but I'm still going to need personal information from you Mm -hmm. if I'm going to give you information on this killer. Yeah. So, um, so he's like, okay, so here's what's up. You have to tell me about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And so she tells him all about the murder of her father. Right. He was was a detective mm -hmm. and, like, loved in the community, um, but he surprised some burglars and they shot him and he died slowly over the course of months basically yeah. and she's like great um anyway bill buffalo bill thinks that he's transgender but he's not actually transgender yeah so what he just th- hates himself and he wants to be somebody else yeah he says that he's like trying to he was very horribly abused as a child and so because of that he wants to be someone that he is not and to him that means that he thinks that he actually is a woman. Right. But that's not what it is. They don't go as in-depth in the movie as they do in the book. This is actually something I very very strongly remember from the book, is they actually talk to the hospitals and stuff and understand, like, why did you reject this guy from getting surgery? Mm-hmm. And they talk about... Um, we can go more into this later. Yeah. But um, they go into that and how, like, this is not a transgender person who is committing these crimes... It is someone who thinks that is, like, the solution to all of life's problems. He's just so unhappy that who he is, like, in who he is as a person that he wants to, like, take on any other identity so that he can not be himself anymore. Yeah, and he tries on other identities throughout the movie. Or it's, like, alluded to previous identities that he's tried on. Um, But this is just the one we see him in and the one that makes him take action. Yep. And we also do see him uh, with Catherine in the hole in his basement because he has a creepy, like, well hole. And he, you know, everybody knows the it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again line where he, like, he puts the the lotion in a basket and he sends it down to her and he makes her, like, rub it into her skin to, like, moisturize herself. And she's, like, begging and pleading and she's like, oh, my God, please just let me go home to my mom. I just want to see my mom. And apparently in that line, because there's, when she says that he like sort of tears up for a second, that was actually apparently a real reaction by Ted Levine because he and the girl who played Catherine became like really close friends because they shot Aww. all of their scenes together. Yeah, like, that makes sense. In most yeah. of their scenes together. And she, I guess, ad-libbed the line where she like screams about like she wants to go back to her mommy. And so he like started to tear up and then managed to like pull it back in and like make it a part of the character, which I think is crazy. That That's is so really cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so. Chilton, Sterling. So, um, so Starling had not told Chilton what she was planning on telling Lecter. Right. When she went in and he was not allowed to go with her. And so what he did, because he is this asshole who is in charge of this prison, um, he's like, oh, I'm going to secretly record this thing. And so he does. And he goes into Lecter and he's like, you know, she's so full of shit, but I'm not. I'm going to make you a real deal. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, he he agrees to the deal. Lecter agrees to the deal that Chilton makes. Yeah. And decides, or, like, agrees to be flown to Memphis. Which is um, where the mother of the woman who was kidnapped, she is, like, a senator Yeah. There. Oh, but also, when Chilton goes in to do his boasting, he leaves a pen in Lecter's cell. Or he brings a pen into Lecter's cell. Which you are not supposed to do. Oh, that's where he got the pen. I was trying to figure out where he got that pen. Yeah, he has it, like, he leaves it on his desk. And I don't know how he gets it because he's, like, completely in, like, like, no one ever is in the cell with him unless he is, like, strapped to a gurney and, like, he has his mask on and he's shackled and all that stuff. But somehow he manages to get a piece of that pen. I mean, they probably undid it to let him stay in the cell, to get back in the cell. That's true, Because he was in the cell at times without all that on. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I was watching that later on, and I was like, wait, where did he get that pen? Yeah, it's Chilton's own fault. God damn it, Chilton. You're going to die, and it's your own fucking fault. Yeah, so he goes to Memphis, and he has this weird, gross conversation with Senator Ruth Martin, uh, who is Catherine's mom, where he's like, asks her if she breastfed her daughter, and she's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, like, when a person loses an arm, sometimes even afterwards, like, they'll still feel a phantom twinge. They'll still feel a tickle. Uh when something should be brushing against their arm. So when he kills your daughter, where is it going to tickle you? And obviously the senator is like, hey, fuck you, get away from me. Yeah. But then he kind of like saves the moment by being like, okay, so fun fact, I do actually know who this is. He was the boyfriend of one of my patients. His name is Lewis Friend. Like he dated this patient until he got like too violent and scary. And then I don't know what happened to my patient. But anyway, you need to look this guy up, right? And Chilton's like, awesome, we're just going to go ahead and take over this case from you now. Yeah. And then uh, Clarice, though, finds out that this is the name they've given. Mm-hmm. And she's all clever and shit. Because she knows that he loves anagrams. Also that. that's something that's come up a lot in her research. And also the Hester Moffat thing kind of clued mm-hmm. her into it. So uh, she notices that Lewis' friend is an anagram of iron sulfide, which is also known as fool's gold. So she's like, oh, he's lying to them. Interesting. Yeah, so she goes to where he's being held in Tennessee, and she lies, like, oh, yeah, I'm here to question him. Like, they totally know. Like, I'm allowed to do this. And I don't know. She bluffs well enough. They yeah. let her in. And Which I feel like they should not no, be doing. No, but I guess, I mean, she's part of the FBI. She does have so an FBI-like like, like, badge. Yeah. So she goes in, and he's, like, in this cage in the middle of a room. And she brings him his drawings. They'd taken them yes. away after he'd convinced Megs to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, what the fuck? Why did you lie to these guys? Why didn't you? Why didn't you said you were going to help us catch him? Why didn't you help us catch him? And he basically says like, oh, I'll still help you, but we need to stick to the quid pro quo. Yeah. And um, in the last meeting, Clarice had mentioned that she'd run away and he wants to know why she ran away. And he assumes like a bunch of, here's another thing. We're going to like, he's very charming a lot of the time. But he also gets gross a lot. He brings up sex 
all the time. As much of like a, you know, sophisticated villain as he gets portrayed as, like he's constantly talking about like, oh, like did you like have to fuck a bunch of guys in the backseat of cars in West Virginia? Like, oh, did like the farmer that you went to live with after your dad died, like did he try to like make you suck his dick? Like all this gross stuff. Yeah. Like he's still a gross creep. He is 100%. He just also likes classical music. That's like it doesn't make you fucking special. And Chianti. Yes. Also doesn't make you special. No, lots no, of people no. like red wine. And lots of people like classical music. That's true. So he's like, you got to tell me why you left. Like, if it wasn't for sexual reasons, like, why did you leave the farm? So she tells him that one morning she woke up in the middle of the night, slash, like, early, early morning, and she heard screaming that sounded like children screaming, but it was lambs, and that these lambs were being slaughtered. And it terrified her, and she didn't want to experience that. She actually tried to save one of the lambs, but it was too heavy, Mm -hmm. and so she just ran away, and she got picked up that morning. And kicked out. Yeah. And the lamb got killed anyway. And so she said that she just hears. She still wakes up in the middle of the night hearing the lamb screaming. Yeah. And Lecter's like, oh, so you think that if you save Catherine, then you'll, you know, find the silence of the lambs. Oh, hey, that's the title drop. Um, And she's like, yeah, I guess basically. I don't know. And he's like, "Okay, well, here is your case file back um, because Chilton comes on in. Yeah, they get interrupted. Get the fuck out. And so he hands the case file back to her and they like have like a weird finger touch moment. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because it's like he, they make such a big deal out of like the slightest like interaction with him is so dangerous, but it's obvious that like he is not going to hurt her. No, he has no never, desire to. He has no interest in hurting her. He wants to know everything about her, but he doesn't want to hurt her. It's like an almost romantic fixation on her. It's almost like he's sort of in love with her. Um, I also saw it referred to as almost like a father-like relationship yeah. in some ways. That's true. And that's actually one of the things that makes him so scary is that he's someone who there's this weird relationship. You can't quite tell if it's like a romantic relationship, if it's like a paternal relationship. There's something and he's kind of charming in some ways, even though he is like gross sometimes. Right. And then he becomes like so violent and scary so quickly, like it just turns. And that's why he's such like a creepy villain. Mm -hmm. And when this movie came out, it was like considered one of the scariest movies of the time. It's still scary. Like it's really scary. So after she leaves, later that evening, Lecter is, like, the guards come in to feed him. And so they go to, or like... It's his second dinner, and he's yeah. requested lamb chops extra, extra rare. rare. Weird. Um, and so they go to, like, cuff him, but he has a little piece of the pen from Chilton that Chilton left in his uh, cell in his hand. And so he waits until they're close to him. And he's, like, cuffed to the side of the, the um, cell. And he picks the lock, gets his hands free, and just fucking murders the two guys. Yeah, like, just goes crazy on them. He locks one of the guards to the side of the cell where he was locked up. And then proceeds to kill them both. Yes. Very violently. He, like, bites one of their faces, like, rips a bunch of it off. He pepper sprays one of them very, very slowly and methodically. Mm-hmm. Whacks one of them. I don't remember which one with, like, the police baton. And then pauses to listen to classical music. Yep. And then here's one of them still moving and goes over to attend to him. And so, obviously, like, everybody figures out that he has gotten free, right? Because they see, like, somebody coming down from, like, the floor that he's on. They're like, oh, that's not they great. They hear gunshots. Right. So they hear gunshots on the fifth floor, which is where he's being held, mm-hmm. and they're, like, freaking out, and then the elevator goes down to three and stops. And the guys get in, and they're like, okay, we got to figure this out. So they go up 
<laughs> and um, they see one of the police officers who's dead, and there's another one who's on the floor who's seemingly dead. And they're, like, checking out the scene, trying to figure out where Lecter went, and they realize one of the police officers is still breathing. They're like, oh, shit, his face is just completely torn up. Oh, it's so messed up. Um, and one of them, the one who was, like, very, very, very clearly dead was very hung up with, like, yeah. ribbons He's like draped around him. Yeah, he's like he's like disemboweled, and then like hung like an angel or like a butterfly up on like Very, the side of the um, cell. Midsummer esque. Very, yeah, and it's something that shows up in uh, in the TV show Hannibal. Oh, they flay I need people to watch like that. that. Show. Yeah, I have to rewatch it. I've only watched like a couple episodes. So they decide to take the police officer who's still alive down in the elevator to the lobby and get him into the ambulance. And while they're in the uh, elevator they see that there's blood dripping from the ceiling and they're like oh shit hannibal's on top of the roof of this elevator so they get the police officer out and into the ambulance and they're gone and they're like okay we're gonna try and get him and so they stop the elevator and they open up the doors on the uh floor above him and they like angle like a mirror out to look at him and they're like okay he's just lying face down there's like a gun near him but not in his hand so they shoot at him they shoot his leg they shoot him in the leg yeah and he doesn't respond they're like okay he's dead so they get him and they pull him out and they realize that it's not hannibal it's the cop with his face not on and so then in the ambulance we see hannibal or the cop that we thought it was stand up and pull the face of the police officer off of his own face. And then he proceeds to violently murder everyone in the ambulance. Of course. So that's the dopest shit I've ever seen. That's so cool. It's amazing. That's what I'm going to do to Maggie. Not actually. I love you. Okay. But <laughs> I made jokes earlier in this podcast. I was making it full circle. I know, but please don't do that to I me. I won't. My face You're is too lovely. big for your face. I have a very long face. You're right. It would never fit. Yeah. Um. So... Starling and her, like, amazing FBI friend, who does not get nearly enough attention in this movie. No, she's so great. And she doesn't she's, even... I don't think she's even named. I don't think this passes the Bechdel test is. because she, yeah, she's she not named. Name. And also everything that they ever talk about is a man because they're looking for Buffalo Bill. That's true. Um, but she and her friend are hanging out and they're going over the case. And Clarice Starling is wearing the best sweater I've ever seen. It is a huge enormous bulky cable knit light blue sweater that probably comes down to her knees and is just i want it so much i want to own that exact sweater i don't remember the sweater and i'm really sad about it now. i will send you a picture of it because it's so good Perfect. but anyway it's not a plot point it's just a really great sweater. sweater please do can you um it might take me like three years but yes i can <laughs> i'm very slow at knitting but i can in fact knit sweet all right I'll send you a picture of it so you know it. You Perfect. Know it. This will take you three extra years because of how enormous Sorry, it is. Sorry. This might be like your 20th wedding anniversary present. Perfect. I'll need a big sweater by then. Perfect. I think I'm just going to get colder with time, right? That's honestly true. Um, and so they go over things and they realize that like, so they found the first victim later than the other victims because she had been weighted down. And during her conversation with Hannibal Lecter... He had mentioned to Clarice, like, well, how do you decide what you want? How do you decide what you covet? It's what you see every day. And so they kind of put two and two together. And they're like, oh, the first person that he killed, the reason that he weighted her down is because he knew her. And he didn't want people to know, like, where to look for him. So she's like, amazing. Great. I'm going to go to her hometown. Um, So she goes to the hometown. And she realizes when she's, like, interviewing the dad of the victim, she, like, goes up to the victim's room, which is still, like, basically untouched. And she realizes that she sewed. She also finds, like, Polaroids of her in her underwear that were clearly taken by whoever killed her. Right. Because she's, like, crying in them. 
which oh is... i thought she was like being shy and like kind of coy oh maybe she is i thought she was crying anyway i thought she was being like i guess flirtatious it makes more sense if she's being flirtatious and coy because how would he especially because then there? she hid those photos yeah, in her okay. jewelry box that does make sense but then she goes to another room and yeah they find a dress pattern and, and it has those diamond shapes yeah they're darts yeah yeah so she's like oh he's making a person suit out of yep so that's why he has been kidnapping women who are on the larger side yeah and then he starves them so that way the skin will be really loose when he kills them so she calls crawford and tells him all of this and he's like well that's great to know but we already have a name and we're like going to arrest this guy it's this guy named jame gum which is a terrible name jame jame no s jame um, and they found it because they looked over Lecter's notes and then they talked with Johns Hopkins about people who had applied for like a gender confirmation surgery and had been turned down. And this was actually something they went into great detail in the book about, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. But one of the tests they described in the book, and I hope I get this right because um, I thought it was fascinating, was that um, they have a person, because they ask, like, why did you turn this person down? And the reason why is they want to make sure when they do, like, a gender reassignment surgery that, like, they're doing it to someone who actually wants it and will be happy with that life decision, actually does identify as the other gender, and uh, isn't someone who's doing it because they think they should, whatever other reasons there might be. Yeah. And so one of the tests in the book they had him do was uh, he had to, they have, like, the person draw what a woman looks like. And or draw like a picture of a woman. And they said that he drew a naked woman when he was just prompted to draw a woman. And that when people who are women draw women, they draw them clothed. Right. And that was one of the signifiers like, oh, this person doesn't actually isn't actually a woman yeah and so they also had tracked a shipment of moths that had been sent to his address and they were like okay this is definitely the guy so they go and they are like ready to burst into his house and as they're sort of circling the house the address that they have we see the girl Catherine, that he has um trying to like capture the dog bill has like a little dog named precious and she's trying to capture his dog so that she can like use it as leverage to escape and in the meantime, he's doing, there are so many scenes in this movie that are like probably the most famous scene in this movie. But like, you know, if you have ever heard the song Goodbye Horses, you'll probably think of this scene. Yep. Because in this scene, he's putting on lipstick. He looks in the mirror. He does the, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me hard. Which, you know, it's a very bizarre scene. It's And then really he like weird. tucks his like junk back behind his legs. So he looks like a, like a sexy naked woman. And he's like dancing to like Goodbye Horses. And so while he's doing his sexy goodbye horses dance, Clarice is talking to friends of his first victim. Crawford and the team are around the address that they have for him in Illinois. She's talking to this girl who's like, oh yeah, like we used to work for this one lady doing some sewing stuff. Maybe she can help you out. Like maybe she can give you more information. So she's like, great, I'll go like to her address. So she goes to this lady's address. And as the SWAT team closes in, they're buzzing the doorbell and downstairs, um, Bill is like having this altercation with Catherine because he's just found out that she has his dog. She's like, don't, he's like, don't fucking hurt my dog. She's like, don't make me hurt your dog. And she's like, it broke its leg when it comes down here. It needs a vet. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to give you something. You need to let me out. Otherwise, I'm going to hurt your dog worse. And then, yeah, we see the buzzing that's happening downstairs in the basement, as and well as like the SWAT team is like ringing the bell and we're like, oh shit, they're there. They are. And then he runs upstairs and he's all pissed off and he opens the door. And Clarice is there. And then we see the SWAT team burst into an empty house. Yeah, so he's not at home. Nope. 
And so she talks to him and he introduces himself as Jack Gordon. And like he'd, I guess, given other inter like other alternate names in the past and they were all like JG names. So she's mm. like, oh, interesting. And so she comes in and she's talking to him. And while they're talking, she notices um, a sphinx moth or the deadhead moth or whatever it's called yeah. land on like a spool of thread. So there's she's, also like butterfly artwork on the walls. Yeah. And it's very, it's just a creepy place. And she's like, oh, shit, this is the guy. So she, like, reaches into her uh, coat and, like, cocks her gun or, like, puts the safety off of her gun. Um, he tells her that he's going to, like, give her the name of the the son of the woman who used to own the house, who she was looking for, who has since died. And she's like, oh, can I use your phone? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you can use my phone. And she's like, this is the guy. Because he's being very creepy and very yeah. weird. And she's like, okay, freeze, put your hands. And he, like, runs off. And he runs down to his creepy basement. And she follows. Yeah, so uh, she chases him around, tries to find him for a bit. It doesn't go super well. She does find the pit that uh, Catherine is in. Yes. Catherine is not excited about the idea that now the FBI agent who has just found her needs to leave to go find the guy. She's like, no, fucking stay here, you fucking bitch. You fucking bitch, don't leave me. Because she's like, I need to leave the room for a second. I'll be back. Like, people are coming. I love it because when she she first comes in, she's like, do you know where he is? And she's like, how would I know? <laughs> Which is a very good point. That is a good she point. has been in a ditch. Um, but so she runs off. She finds the dead body of the woman who used to live in the house in a bathtub. Real gross. Yes. Um, at some point, we also see a shot of the half-completed woman suit. It's gross. It's got like one boob. Yep. And it's not pleasant. And we also see, so you mentioned earlier, like some other identities that we see. And we kind of get a little bit of that yeah. here. Like, we see that he has, like, a lot of swastika stuff around. So it seems like he was really into Nazism at one point. Um, he has, like, pictures of himself with, like, uh, strippers. And it, he's wearing, like, trucker hats. And it seems like he was really leaning into, like, the macho man personality So it's at one very point. much alluded to without explicitly showing that he's been trying to figure out who he is and like what his identity is for a long time he's kind of hopping from one to the next yeah and trying to find one that will like make him feel better about himself but like nothing's gonna make him feel better about himself and so while she's in the bathroom with the dead body in the bathtub he turns the lights out yeah he like turns off the power and he has night vision goggles so he's following her with his night vision goggles and he keeps like reaching out like he wants to like caress her hair or her face and then like not actually touching her yeah and so while he's following her around he cocks his revolver because he has a gun as well he cocks it and And then she immediately turns around and shoots him multiple times with the gun that she already turned the safety off of yeah so she's ready to fucking go and so they get Catherine out of the house yeah he's dead everyone's okay he's dead she saves the day uh and then we see her graduation party, like her ceremony, where she goes and she like gets her credentials and and Crawford, who is her kind of been her mentor and has believed in her this entire time, goes and like has a very weird slow handshake with her. Yeah, I think it's just supposed to symbolize I don't know, like a man not being a creep to her and just their nice professional relationship. He's like, by the way, you have a phone call, and she goes to the phone, and who is it on the phone? It's fucking Hannibal Lecter, and he's like, hey, don't come after me. I'm not going to come after you. And she's like, I can't promise not to do that. And he's like, all right, well, anyway, I got to run because I'm having an old friend for dinner. And then we see Chilton getting off a plane because Chilton's the fucking worst and Hannibal's going to go eat him. He is. And then we see this long shot of just Chilton going out through this crowd, walking back to wherever it is that he's staying and Hannibal Lecter in disguise following him like Wearing a pretty great wig. Yeah, he's got a good wig And like a Panama hat. Very casual linen suit. He's in, I guess they're in Haiti. He's like kicking it. Cool. Having a great time. He's going to eat that guy. 
have a great dinner, enjoy some beach, maybe have an hour of swimming. Yeah, maybe. He can have as many hours as he wants now. He's a free man. Oh, man, living the life. Um, All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about this movie, but first I want to get into some of our sources, one of which is Projected Fears by Kendall R. Phillips, which had a whole chapter on this, which was fantastic. Um, Silence of the Lambs, the essay by Robin Wood. Um, There is a Fandango.com article called The Silence of the Lambs at 25, Why Gene Hackman Dropped Out and Why Thomas Harris Wouldn't Watch It by Christopher Campbell. There is a Deadline.com article called Jonathan Dem and Untold Silence of the Lambs Tales. Hannibal, Clarice, Tally, Hackman, and a Discarded Scary Ending by Mike Fleming Jr. There is a BBC.com article called Why the Silence of the Lambs is a Feminist Fable by Nicholas Barber. And a Slate.com article called Why Gays Decried Silence of the Lambs, Jonathan Dem Became an Early Student of Modern Backlash by Jeffrey Bloomer. Most of these came out in 2017 because that was the 25th anniversary of the movie. So it was like a whole big thing. I think it was released wide in 92. Gotcha. So one thing that I think is interesting about this movie is what a shift in horror it sort of represents, right? Yeah, it's so realistic. It is very realistic. And we've talked a lot about slasher horrors of the 80s. And obviously... I love 80s slashers. Not Who a secret. Doesn't? They're so good. They're fun. They're goofy. They're weird. Some of them are very scary. Some of them are not as scary. But they really don't feel like this. No. It's a very different feeling. Right. And one of the things that Kendall Phillips talks about in Projected Fears is that during the 1980s, slasher horror sort of, it started out as like Halloween in 78, right? Halloween was scary because people hadn't seen something like that yeah and then you had your um friday the 13th 13th, nightmare on elm street you had like they were all scary like even nightmare on elm street which i would say is the cheekiest of them is still scary yeah definitely but by the end of the 80s there had been like a million fucking nightmare on elm street sequels and like by that point freddie had had like a spin-off television show (laughs) and like he was just a comical character like he was overdone and like too funny and just like far away from what was actually I mean, scary it definitely turned into just a pure horror comedy situation right. by like movie three or four exactly and like kind of all of those sequels get progressively less and less frightening yeah and the slasher thing had just been done to death and kind of at the same point in time general awareness of serial killers was becoming more and more like widespread so obviously like your gacy's bundy's berkowitz's kemper all those guys were caught in the late 70s mid to late 70s right hopefully there was only one of each of those (laughs) you haven't heard about gacy too i haven't heard about all the bundys i've only heard about one very specific (laughs) bundy but Uh, my serial killer uh education might be lacking no there's just the one bundy I hope so they were all caught during the 70s but because of people like john douglas who we talked about earlier there were interviews with them being done while they were in prison. So even though they'd already been caught and their crimes had finished, like people were starting to learn more and more about, like about why they had done what they did and like the compulsions that led them to kill. Guys like Bundy, I mean, they talked nonstop. Ed Kemper loved to talk about like why he did all of his things because they made them feel special, you know? And at the same time, you have people like BTK or who we now know as the Golden State Killer that who was originally called the original Night Soccer during this time period. They were still at large. Like people still didn't know who they were. So there was still sort of this, like, public zeitgeist around serial killers where people were, like, very concerned about it. And as Phillips puts it, during this decade, the serial killer became an almost mythic figure. 
So if you already have a form of horror that's super violent, but not as scary as it used to be, and you have this rise of like really scary real life slasher villains, what's scarier than making movies based off of real killers? I mean, we've mentioned this in past episodes, but I think it's worth saying again that like every decade you almost get closer and closer to like more realism. Yeah. You have like the 70s, which like, oh, this is something that's big and scary. And they're like, oh, okay, you want that big scary thing? Now let's give it blood because blood would actually be what's shown. Then it's like, okay, now it's serial killers. Then it's like, okay, now it's over the top gore. Like what would the guts actually look like? And for a long time, it was just getting to, like, how can we make it as realistic and grisly as possible? And there's, like, a clear step every decade. And I think it's actually interesting that now we're sort of shifting away. Like, things are still very gory, but it's almost like um, supernatural horror has come more into vogue now. Or, like, really weird surreal horror has come back. I think because, we all like, know what can happen in real life. Right. And that isn't as scary. Now we kind of become desensitized to it. Exactly. We've all seen hyper-realistic gore. So you have to find something new and scary. Yeah. And there's always been some sort of supernatural horror, but now we're getting to like social horror as well. Exactly. With things like, I think Midsommar counts as that. Yeah. Or Get Uh, Out. Get Out and Us. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're getting into some new interesting places. It is very cool. I mean, The Purge is also a good uh, example of that. that's a good point. Um, But during this point, during the 80s, books specifically about FBI methods for tracking and catching killers were, like, so popular. Like, I mean, Mindhunter didn't come out until the 90s. But um, there was one book called Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which introduced a super creepy character called Hannibal Lecter and went into a lot of detail about FBI procedures. And people were like, I like this shit. And so they made a movie out of it. Yeah, the movie came out in 1986 and was called Manhunter. And it focused on one of the FBI profilers. Yes, a guy named Will Graham, whose name might sound familiar to you if you are a watcher of Hannibal, because that Uh, is the main character of the show Hannibal. interesting. I haven't watched Hannibal. Yeah. Um, And he also kind of enlists, like, Hannibal Lecter's help in tracking down another killer. But Lecter was also, like, a major villain of this one. Yeah. More so than he's kind of like an anti-hero almost in Silence of the Lambs, but he's more of just a pure villain in Red Dragon, right? I guess he's attacked Will Graham in the past, and so they have, like, a whole weird history, whereas, like, Clarice kind of comes into it a little bit fresher and, like, not as afraid of him necessarily. That makes sense. Um, And it sort of helped inspire, like, the trend of procedural movies and TV shows, but it didn't really do very well. It was not a huge hit. But the book had a sequel. It did. Called Silence of the Lambs. That's this movie. And it was also a huge hit. But it was kind of hard to get the rights sold to anybody. Like, obviously, it's a perfect movie to make because it got made and it's a great movie. But, like, people were not super inclined to make it because Manhunter hadn't done great. And a lot of people thought that the movie was way too violent. It is fucked up. So I kind of get that. Have you but watched also, it? Oh, my God. Have you? No. <laughs> No, I didn't mean Manhunter. I meant this movie, the movie we're talking about. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, I thought... I thought you were doing a bit. <laughs> I meant... I thought you were saying that Manhunter was super fucked up. No. And I was like, oh, have you seen Manhunter? No, this movie, They like, when they read the script, they were like, I don't know, it's good, but I don't know. I think I'm desensitized. Yeah, it's not that it. bad. It's, like, definitely bad by 91 standards. It is, yeah. But not by, like, 2019 standards. I mean, Candyman came out in 92, and while it wasn't as much of a hit, um, it still had, like, some, like, a goriness to it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the beginning of, like, gory, gory stuff, but it's not all the way there. Thank you, Silence of the Lambs, for bringing us into the disgusting, gory present that we live in. Here we are. 
Um, and actually, Gene Hackman, the actor, uh, initially bought the rights, like in combination with Orion Studios, because he wanted to direct. And he also thought, like, maybe he'd play Hannibal Lecter, and then he thought maybe he'd play Crawford. He wasn't 100% sure. So I read the thing about Gene Hackman um, being a part of this. In my mind, I was just imagining Gene Wilder. I would give anything to watch a version of this movie where Gene Wilder plays Hannibal Lecter. It would be so good. I think he'd honestly do a really good job. Probably, actually. He's a, he was a great actor. One of my favorite things that I read while I was doing research for this is that um, apparently Gene Hackman kept talking to Ted Talley, who was the writer on it, and being like, yeah, we're going to get Bobby to play uh, to play Hannibal Lecter. We're going to get Bobby to play Hannibal Lecter. And Ted Talley was like, I don't actually know who he was referring to when he said Bobby. <laughs> so I was like, do you mean like Bobby De Niro? Do you mean like Bobby Duvall? Like, who is it exactly that you're talking about? He just kept saying Bobby. And so I never asked. And uh, eventually he just dropped out. So I don't know who Bobby was supposed to be. <laughs> That's great. So maybe Robert De Niro was going to play Hannibal Lecter. So he was like all ready to go and make this movie. And then I guess his daughter read the script. And she was like, you can't make this movie, Dad. It's way too violent. It's good in the long How run. How old was his daughter? I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, you wouldn't let like a child child read this script, right? I mean, this was also a year before Reservoir Dogs came out. Yeah. Like violent movies were being made. Yeah. Well, I guess part of the issue is that he'd already been in a couple really violent movies. And she was like, if you make this right after making the other really violent movies that you were just in, like it's all people are going to think of. Okay. That's So I kind of get that. But either way, he sold his shares back to Orion and Orion was like, we've already been working with this young director called Jonathan Demme. We'll just get him to do this. Great choice. Yeah. Good so call, good. Orion. And so Jonathan Demme was currently working with Orion Pictures, and he was uh, working on a, a movie about, like, a road rage victim starring Danny Glover, and he was, like, really excited to be working with Danny Glover. They hadn't started pre-production or anything yet. And he sent the script off to Mike Metavoy at Orion, and he said, Mike called the next day and said, Jonathan, this is a good script, and we love Danny. We'll go with this, but I want you to read something before we can commit to this picture. And he sent me the book, Silence of the Lambs. It was all there, this brilliant novelist Thomas Harris at the peak of his powers telling this classic American story with this great leading woman part. And I was like, oh my God, yes. I just knew it could be scary as hell, an incredible picture. So he was like, all right, forget that fucking road rage Danny Glover thing. I'm going to make this. And then Jodie Foster appeared. Yeah, so she had just won an Oscar for The Accused, and Orion wanted her on this. And she wanted to be on it because she had called Ted Talley and been like, cast me as Clarice Starling. It was just a beautiful situation. It was almost derailed, though, because Jonathan Demme originally wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. Can you imagine? No. That would have been so not right. There are a ton of almost casting decisions that I just can't imagine actually having happened because they would be so fucking awful. Um, But I guess that they had worked together on Married to the Mob, which he had directed previously. But Tally was like, first off, she's too beautiful. Obviously, Jodie Foster is also very beautiful, but she's like normal person beautiful, not like Michelle Pfeiffer beautiful, where it's like the only thing you can think about when she's on screen. And also, she was like a little too old to play like an FBI trainee. Which is valid, yeah. But they did offer it, I guess, to Michelle Pfeiffer because she read through it and was like, I don't know about this material and passed. Um, I do really enjoy some of the other people who are in contention for Hannibal Lecter, though, because like what I would give to see a Morgan Freeman Hannibal Lecter... Honestly, I think he would have been really good. I think he would have been really good. But when I think of Morgan Freeman, this is a horrible association for him, and I'm sorry. But I think of him as God and Bruce Almighty. I was just going to say that. I also think of him that way. I think of like a combination <laughs> of that and Red in the uh, Shawshank Redemption. I've never actually seen the movie. He's great in the movie. But I, I can imagine him playing Hannibal Lecter, and I think it would have been really creepy, but it also would have been a completely different vibe. Like, more of a warm, creepy. I think he creepy. still would have been really good, though. I think so, too. I don't think he would have seemed quite as, like, 
cold and calculating as Anthony Hopkins did, though. If there was, like, a way to bop in between, like, multiple realities and I could, like, bop into the universe where he had played uh, Hannibal Lecter, I would watch the shit out of that movie and then come right back to our Anthony Hopkins universe where all is right with the world. Um, Yeah, but they thought about him. They thought about Dustin Hoffman. As we discussed, De Niro and Duvall, both Roberts. One of the Roberts. We don't really know which one it was. I don't know which Bobby. No one knows which Bobby. And then Sean Connery. Yeah. To go from being James Bond to being Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) It's a big difference. Dude, this movie came out in 1991. He was Bond in like the 60s. No, I I think he made it into the 70s. Okay, it looks like he was technically in a Bond movie in 1983. Less but, than 10 years. But his main Bond run was in the 60s. I don't know. I have no sense of time. I, I get that. <laughs> he definitely would have been an older man at this point. I don't think I've also ever seen a Sean Connery James Bond. I just knew that he was in James Bond. But then they, they kind of thought about Anthony Hopkins more. And he had played... I, I haven't actually seen the movie Magic by William Goldman. Um, but I guess he plays like sort of a, a crazy guy in magic. And then he had played a doctor in the, the movie, the elephant man. And so they were like, okay, well, if he has to play like a crazy doctor, boom, he's done both of those things. And so they got him on board and they did this read through with Foster and Hopkins. And Dem says that there was electricity in that room coming off of what Hopkins was doing. The whole room fell silent after they read the final line of the script. And Dem says, I realized the actual bottom line truth of doing Silence of the Lambs, something I felt when I read that book. I thought, this could be the scariest movie ever. And I wanted to make that movie. I wanted to make a psycho caliber fucking terrifying movie. So I was reading a uh, article talking about Anthony Hopkins and like what made Hannibal Lecter so scary. Mm-hmm. And apparently like ever since he was a kid, he did some of the things that he did as Hannibal Lecter. So like he'd tell like scary stories about vampires to like the girls to scare them as a kid. He'd do the whole like oh, God, thing, like so... the like weird little mm. tongue thing he does. Um, he'd do that as a small child to creep out other small children. That's the scariest shit I've ever because heard. Because he Lock just like... Up was really good at scaring people. And he said something like, I've always been good at scaring people. Oh my God. And so he has talked about how like this role has been inside of him since a child. And it's so cool. Yeah. Apparently he sprung that on Jodie Foster when they were shooting that scene. And she was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I love it. Also, apparently off screen, like when they weren't filming, he was making fun of her attempts at a West Virginia accent. And she got, like, pissed off at him. And so then when he did it in the scene, like, where he, like, mocks her accent, she got, like, mad again. And it, like, added to, like, the oh, overall I love it. Scene. So he was, like, killing it in there. And she was just sort of, I guess she was very... She was reacting strongly. Right. Exactly. And she was very grateful to him, I guess, afterwards, because he had done so much He pulled for more her. of a performance out of her because of it. Exactly. Um, I do think it's interesting that they refer to Psycho as being, like, sort of the level that they were shooting for. There are definitely a handful of similarities. We mentioned this when we did our episode on Psycho. Yeah. It, I mean, it really inspires a lot of things. Um, and Robin Wood, who is a great horror essayist uh, who wrote a short essay about this movie, points out the kind of similar approach to Norman Bates and Hannibal Lecter, where they're both obviously nuts, right? Yes. Like, overall scope of the movie, like, both of them are very dangerous people. But we get to see these sort of domestic moments almost between both um, Norman and Marion Crane and then Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, uh, which is interesting because Marion Crane has the name of Bird and Clarice Starling has the name of Bird. And they're actually both secretly played by birds. That's also a true fact about both of those movies. Definitely true. For sure accurate. Um, It's not. (laughs) And so you get to kind of see them as humans. Like, in a lot of slasher movies, the villain 
is just a monster and you don't get to like you never see what Jason is interested in other than murder right I guess swimming once upon a time it didn't go great for him though (laughs) but he might have liked it for like 30 seconds before he died but like Michael Myers only likes to kill like it's all he's been into since he was a kid um Freddy Krueger likes to make bad puns and sexually harass young people and murder people yeah like that's his whole thing we get to see Hannibal Lecter being interested in art and travel and food and uh, wine and, you know, uh, music. Like, you know he who would have made a great Hannibal Lecter? Who? Kelsey Grammer. Fuck, he would have. Oh, my God. He would have been a great Hannibal Lecter. I'm pretty sure Frasier well, is just the precursor to him becoming a cannibal. I think you're right. He's a psychiatrist, right? Yeah. Fuck. We've unleashed something here. We've hit upon something important. We're going to come back to this at some point in time. We will. All right. And you can almost kind of see, like, Clarice and Hannibal Lecter kind of become friends during the movie. Like, they don't... It doesn't really go that far. I guess in the books, they fall in love. But, like, in the movie, they sort of form this uneasy friendship. And you sort of see the same thing with Marion Crane and Norman Bates. They kind of become semi-friends. Obviously, he kills her. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of think about, like, how much scarier it is that you can have, you can meet this person who seems normal. Like, when you meet Hannibal Lecter, he seems like a charming guy. I mean, then he sort of fucks it up by saying weird sexual shit. But, like, we've all met a guy who fucks up a conversation by saying weird sexual shit. doesn't blink. That part is definitely weird. But he's still kind of charming in spite of it. He is slightly charming despite the fact that he doesn't know how to blink. And it's almost like, eventually, like, over the course of the movie, you see her let her guard down. And, like, what is scarier than the idea of letting your guard down and sort of growing to trust or like this person who has done awful things? Who has eaten someone's face off? Like, that's so fucked up. And Tally kind of mentions that he, they don't necessarily consider to be, um, they don't necessarily consider Psycho to be like a direct influence, but that everybody involved in the making of this movie liked Psycho. Um, And they took a kind of similar path when it came to violence and bloodshed. Psycho, famously, you have the shower scene where you see no actual stabbing and you see very little blood. In this movie, there is more bloodshed, for sure. There's the one very gory murder scene, right? But even then, you see, like, Hannibal's face go towards the police officer, and it comes up bloody. You don't actually see his teeth, like, sinking into the flesh. Right. You see his hand coming down. You see a shot from below of him, his hand coming down with the police baton. You don't see the police baton connecting with the guy. Yeah, it's a lot of implied gore. And, like, you see the aftermath, but you don't actually see the weapons hitting the body right and similarly like when buffalo bill like lures christine into the car you you know he attacks her because you hear it happen but you don't see it because like the car yeah, you see him in. like shove in the couch really violently and close the doors but you don't actually see anything that he does to her right and similarly when there's the scene where chilton is bringing um clarice down to see lecter and he's like oh like you know, he had, uh, he was complaining of chest pain. So this nurse like took off his harness and he, you know, lunged at her. And this is what he did to her face. Like he hands her a photo. You don't see what the photo is. But then he says like, oh, they were able to reattach her jaw. Right. So you get a sense of what it is. You like, they mentioned something about like his pulse didn't go above 85 even when he was eating her tongue. So like, you know what happened, but you don't really see it. And like, same with the autopsy, you see the back of her, but you don't see the front, which is what appears to be like causing Clarice the most distressed. So there are all these moments where they could show so much more, but it almost like it lets you go further in your own brain and like try to imagine what it could be. It's really well done. Yeah. 
Uh, Dem also mentions uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as being an inspiration for this. He says, there's that crazy shit in there with the grandpa getting that little blood fix, drinking the blood at the dinner table, but most everything else was implied. Which is true. You don't actually see that much gory violence in Texas Chainsaw. And I think it's interesting, in comparison with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, how far we've come with the final girl. Yeah. Between there and here. Yeah. Nikolai agrees. Because Clarice Starling is basically the ultimate ideal version of the final girl. Um, she's threatened by the killer, sure, right? Kind of. But only because she hunts him down. He doesn't get to her. She gets to him. I was going to say, like, he isn't actually, she isn't actually ever threatened by anyone until she, like, corners Exactly. It's almost like a reverse of the situation. He's not relentlessly tracking her down. She is doing the tracking down. Like, yeah. she finds the killer. She gets to, like, as Carol J. Clover puts it in her book, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, she calls it, like, the the terrible place or something like that. She puts herself there. She's not lured to it. She goes there intentionally, and she gets what she wants. And she saves what would have been potentially another final girl. Exactly. Um and instead of, like, needing the help of men, which is something that happens a lot in the early final girl days, she does this without the help of, like, the men are somewhere else. Well, she has help from one man. Yeah, but he's not even there when any of this That's stuff happens. True. She shoots him all by herself. Oh, I meant, like, to track them down. Oh, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yes. But she does, when she's there, when she's at the house, she figures no, she out does that it it's all him by, her own, by herself. Um, and honestly, most of her obstacles, which obstacles are kind of a theme of, there's like a theme of their own in this movie where she has the obstacle course at the beginning there's a labyrinth down to finding Hannibal Lecter and then obviously the obstacle course at the end of the movie um they come from men in one way or another well 100 percent. there's like the men that say like oh we need to go talk in another room because we can't be around the sensitive lady there's migs throwing his jizz all over her exactly chilton's a weird creep even when crawford is trying to like be good he won't give her the information about what they want out of hannibal lecter because he thinks that hannibal lecter will be able to get it out of her and then even when she's doing really good detective work and brings the bug to the right people to figure it out they're just staring at her hitting on her the entire time yeah think about how much easier her life would have been how much faster so this movie would have been if she was just a man seriously and Lecter I mean like for all of the helpful information that he gives her half of the time is spent talking about how like oh you must have like had those sticky fumblings in the back seats of the boys that you grew up with and like then there's Buffalo Bill who he doesn't have like necessarily a sexual angle towards her but he only views women as a commodity that he has to destroy to get what he wants I wouldn't be surprised if Hannibal Lecter treated men similarly to how he treats women not because he's like singling out Clarice, but because he's a psychiatrist. That's true. And that's kind of what he does is he tries to break down walls by intruding too far into someone. We never really got to see him interact with anyone else. I would not be, and everyone else is gross and horrible and yeah. they suck. I think I would not be surprised if he pulled similar shit on like Crawford or Chilton that is a good and stuff. Point. Yeah, he may just be looking for the weak point. I think Which that's he what doesn't he's doing. Necessarily he's trying to poke find buttons with Clarice in that regard. He doesn't. Her trauma he, is not sexual at all. He pokes the buttons to get him to where he wants to be. That's true. Um, and, and there is a quote that I really liked from the BBC article that is, more than anything else, Silence of the Lambs is a film about what it's like for women to be stared at by men. <laughs> and that, I mean, there's a lot of men oh, staring at women that. in this movie. There is a lot of men staring at women. Um, another thing that was kind of interesting in terms of like, sexuality and kind of how you respond to a male-dominated world um, was this idea that Kendall Phillips brings up about um, pairings or doubles in the movie. And he kind of talks a little bit about, like, how Crawford and Lecter are sort of, like, doubles of each other in a weird way, like mere opposites of each other. They both try to be 
weird like mentors to Clary. Right. But they're both very different ends of like the legal spectrum and like one's very selfish, one's very community focused. Like, and that's cool. But I think that the really cool ones that he compares are Clarice and Buffalo Bill. Okay. Who are both point of view characters of this movie. We get to see both of their processes and their actions drive the film's narrative. Everything that happens in the movie happens either because of Clarice or Buffalo Bill. And they're both victims, as he puts it, of a brutal and sensitive society, although they react to it in really different ways. So you have Clarice, who is motivated to seek out police work as a reaction to her father's violent death. Um, She is always overlooked or sexualized due to her gender, but she doesn't let it stand in her way. She tries to overcome it. She doesn't let it define her. She is frustrated by it, but she keeps going beyond it. Meanwhile, Buffalo Bill is trying to define himself by what he thinks is his gender. Exactly. So Clarice is able to seek this. She finds a position of authority specifically over the men who question her ability or sexualize her. And community sort of like live up to the position that her father had. Whereas you have Buffalo Bill also had a traumatic childhood, but it's led to this inability for him to develop his own identity, right? So we see a search for other identities. And like you said, he's like seeking out this identity that is also very gender sexuality based, but he wants to be seen from what we see of him as an object of sexual desire, right? That would you fuck me, I'd fuck me. So he is seeking out something that will make him desirable or likable or, you know, appealing to people because he feels so gross on his own. That's really interesting. Right? Um, Right? I thought it was kind of cool. It's very interesting to see how, like, one of them's like, I am a woman and I want to be defined further than that. One's like, I want to be defined only as that. Right, because we don't get any sense of what else he wants. That's all he seemingly wants. Right, he thinks that just that is going to fix everything but that's not gonna fix the other million things that are wrong with him i mean he's a fucking monster having a woman suit will not improve that in any meaningful no, way No, definitely not it will only make it worse and ultimately they are the two characters who are the most at odds in this movie right yeah. as phillips puts it if bill achieves his identity starling fails and if you know vice versa if she gets what she wants he has to fail And as we've talked about a little bit, obviously his identity has not necessarily aged super great. And I think this is something we talked about starting in Psycho. Yes. Where it was a similar thing where, okay, he is dressing up as a woman and killing people and that's crazy, blah, blah, blah. And the intention wasn't in Psycho either that the person was supposed to be transgendered or was even supposed to be gay. It's just like he was like, absorbing his mother's like essence or whatever right and in this like i thought the book did a really good job of trying to say like this person is not a part of any of these communities Mm -hmm. and no one should think that i think the movie tries and doesn't quite hit that as well and again i it's been 10 to 15 years since i read this book but i do very strongly remember the book saying this And I mean, in the movie, they sort of allude to it. Lecter outright says that he is not actually transgender. He's just looking for an identity and hoping that, like, this will fix how he feels about himself. And he actually even says, like, people who are transgender are not violent people. Right. Clarice is like, that is not something that is the case. Right. Um, And of course, he's, we established that he's been turned down for gender confirmation surgery, suggesting that this isn't really about gender dysphoria. It's about something else. Like, he's trying to get something else out of this. And like in Psycho, he is also inspired by Ed Gein, who was not technically a serial killer. A lot of people refer to him as such, but he only actually killed two people, which means he is not a serial killer. You have to kill three to be a serial killer? Three people with a cooling down period. So between them? Yeah. If you kill three people on one day, you're a spree killer or a mass murderer. Um, it has to be different occasions. And he killed two people on the same day. Gotcha. So Ed Gein did 
try to make a suit out of the skins of women that he either killed or exhumed. He exhumed a lot of women's bodies, which is why he had so much woman skin. That makes sense, yeah. Um, And it doesn't seem like he actually was transgender, although he was arrested in 1957, so it's like maybe they didn't really know what was happening there. It seems like he just wanted to be his mom because he had a weird fixation on his mother, which is also kind of what happens in Psycho. And I guess there's an illusion in the book that Gum wants to be his mother as well. I don't remember that at all. I don't, yeah. They, again, they mention it in like an article that I read, but I've been a hot sex yeah. since I last read that book. Um, but it's still, I mean, it got some backlash uh, about the fact that the main villain, whether or not he's transgender, he is also depicted as being gay, at least presenting as gay, I guess, because he dates a man. They talk about him having dated a man in the past. Okay. Because he was dating Lecter's Oh, client. right, right, right. He has a little yippy dog. He speaks with a high-pitched voice. Uh, there's actually a quote from the um, Slate article. The killer in the movie is a walking, talking gay stereotype, one glad leader told the press. He has a poodle named Precious. He sews. He wears a nipple ring. He has an affected feminine voice, and he cross-dresses. He completely promotes homophobia. So while this movie, I would say, actively tries to go out of its way to say, like, we are not trying to insult the trans community, it doesn't, it doesn't do, do that. that with the gay community. No, and I... That wasn't Jonathan Demme's intention. And I believe that. And he followed up this movie by making the movie Philadelphia. I have not seen it. Which is about um, Tom Hanks, and uh, he he plays a um, gay man with AIDS. And it's about him basically struggling like legally with his work so about like discrimination and and it didn't really help uh, because a lot of gay viewers just felt like it was a stupid half-assed apology because it's also not like he is in a relationship with Antonio Banderas in the movie but like they like I think sit next to each other in bed and like dance a little bit like they're mm-hmm. not a real it doesn't come across as an authentic relationship so it also feels sort of halfway um and Dem acknowledges that he could have handled the whole situation in Silence of the Lambs better uh, as he put it in 2014, James Gum isn't gay, and this is my directorial failing in making The Silence of the Lambs, that I didn't find ways to emphasize the fact that Gum wasn't gay. Juan Botas, who was one of the inspirations for Philadelphia, said, you can't imagine what it's like to be a 12-year-old gay kid, and you go to the movies all the time, and whenever you see a gay character, they're either a ridiculous comic relief character or a demented killer. It's very hard growing up gay and being exposed to all those stereotypes. That registered with me in a big way. It's now become a part of the dialogue on stereotypical portrayals of gays in movies. So at least he, like, he got it later on. He understands how he fucked up, which is good. It is. And obviously, I think if somebody was making this movie today, they would approach this very differently. And it's interesting because it's like, even by the, like, the standards of the time, obviously people were upset by it. It wasn't like people didn't know about, like, it was 91. Like, it wasn't like yeah. this came out in 1956. Okay, that's true, but have you seen episodes of Friends? Oh, my because God. Because it is so cringeworthy. Holy shit. I was watching, I was recently doing a, a rewatch of Sex and the City, and there's an episode about bisexuality, and I oh, skipped it. Oh, yeah, good just call. Just skipped it all together. I was like, I don't want to fucking know what Carrie Bradshaw oh, thinks about exactly being Oh, I know exactly what bi. she has to say. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Friends, like... That didn't start until the mid-90s. And even in, like, the later seasons, they were still making jokes that were just, like, making you feel bad as a person. That was on, like, that was the biggest television of the show of the time. Yeah. So this came out years before, and this handled things more sensitively than that did. Like, But it still it, could have been better. Oh, uh, And no, it should have sorry, been better. <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to say, is that right. this did a good job. What I'm saying is that, like... There are things that were a lot worse at the time. Mm-hmm. So comparatively, this isn't as bad. It still has a lot of room for improvement. I'm happy the director has said that he like realizes where he messed up and has tried to make amends for it. Yeah. Um, and we need to realize where we have all made mistakes in the past. 
But damn, this it got so much worse before it got better. Yeah, but it's and I always think it's important to like acknowledge that like yeah, we haven't always been where we are now, but also a product of its time only goes back so far. And by 1991, like people knew that gay people were human beings who like oh no, there 100%. were gay people in like the public eye, and it, it wasn't like some strange mysterious thing. Um, so you know, as much as I, I understand that it wasn't what Jonathan Dem intended, it definitely could have been done better. Yeah. In terms of other legacy, in terms of positive legacy, Clarice Starling is still an incredible, unbelievable female character. She is really great. She is truly wonderful. And apparently the FBI was hoping that since her character is so great, it would inspire more women to join the FBI. Did it? I don't know. Oh. Probably. I mean, I feel like more women probably were joining in the 90s than had been previously anyway. If not because of Clarice Starling, then certainly because of Scully. Agent Dana Scully. Yes. Ugh. Again, the 90s had better like female characters than the 2000s did, too. Also extremely true. Yes. Very true. The 2000s were not a great nah, time for like just representation really. in general. But this movie, people loved this movie. Dude. I yes. did read about how people supposedly like puked in theaters. I feel like every time there's a new intense scary movie, people say that people puked in theaters. I don't know if it's real or not. Yeah, I don't know about that. But Nothing supposedly people puked gross. in theaters. I don't know about all that. But whether or not people puked in theaters, this movie fucking dominated at the box office and in at the reviews Oscars. And Oscars. This swept. It won Best Picture. Best Director, Best Actress in a Lead Role, Best Actor in a Leading Role, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And fun fact, Anthony Hopkins actually holds the record for the least on-screen time required to earn a Best Actor Oscar. He is only in this movie for 18 minutes, which seems fucking crazy to me. That is absolutely ridiculous. Because he dominates the screen every second he's on it. He's all you can focus on. And I guess there was sort of some dispute as to whether or not he should have even been nominated for best leading actor because he's not the primary protagonist he's not the primary antagonist he's like a secondary character and he's only in the movie for 18 minutes i could have seen him being supporting actor but at the same time like you come away from this movie is this movie about buffalo bill or is this movie about hannibal lecter this movie is about clarice starling yes but in terms of men it's not about men, Maggie. <laughs> it's about a woman, and that's okay. But which man is it about the most? The most would probably be Hannibal Lecter. It feels like it, right? Like, he feels the most impactful in it. So I guess it makes sense. I do think Ted Levine should have won an Oscar, or at least been nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, because he's also great in this movie. But most importantly is it won the big five. Right. And it was only the third film in history to ever do that. After it happened one night and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. All right. Well, Maddie, what are we watching next time? I don't want to. But we have to because we said we would on the... On the- uh, okay. We're watching... Um, I don't know if this is one of my favorites or one of my least favorites. No, we're going to watch The Babadook. Yeah, we are. LGBT icon The Babadook. You know what? That might actually make it more fun to watch. That is I my watched favorite it. joke. My favorite joke. It's For, a if joke. There are listeners who do not get that joke. Apparently, at one point in time, Netflix accidentally listed the Babadook under their LGBT picks, which is hilarious because I had no idea that was the yeah. origin. And so then people kept making jokes about like, oh right, because the Babadook is about like the gay Babadook, or like it's the LGBT icon, the Babadook. He's sort of become a weird gay icon, and I don't. I love it. I just love it because I love the internet and I love people. I think that might make this movie a lot more yeah, enjoyable. Yeah, you just gotta imagine him at the Pride Parade. But it's very intense. It's very depressing. It's really fucked up. Yeah. It's all a fucking allegory. I can't wait. Honestly, I love a good allegory. I can't wait to talk about it. I'm gonna be... And 
It's, to quote Tim, why can't we watch something nice for once? So You know, that's a good question that I ask myself every day. <laughs> you know what I've watched in the past week? I watched a really shitty horror movie Netflix original called Cam. After that, we watched Rollerball, which is a mid-2000s, early 2000s, like, intense sport, violence, corruption, rollerblades movie, because that's what you expect <laughs> to go together. And then I had to watch Silence of the Lambs, which is a very good movie, but not, like, nice. So we basically watched Teeth and then watched season two of Mindhunter, which is about primarily about uh, both BTK and the Atlanta child murders. <laughs> so that was fun. And then we capped it off by watching uh, Silence of the Lambs. And it took me later than I would have liked to watch Silence of the Lambs because every time I'd be like, Tim, can we watch Silence of the Lambs tonight? He was like, why won't you let me watch something nice? Why can't we just watch something that's fun? Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to be it for us for this evening. I think so. Um, But we are looking forward to talking to you guys next time. Uh, If you have any comments, questions, concerns, corrections, let us know. Uh, We are on Facebook. Uh, we are Saturday the 14th on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And uh, reach out. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We always want to hear from you. And also, um, you can always rate and review us, which we very much appreciate. It helps we us really reach a wider do. audience. Um, and we, you know, we like to know what you guys think. So uh, we hope you have a lovely couple of weeks. And we will talk to you later. Drive safe and text us when you get there. Mwah. <laughs>